Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone in Bethlehem and here in McCungie. First of all, I just want to send greetings from everyone in the UK, Kenton M.A., my beautiful wife Trish, and my adorable daughter Mercy. They send their love to all you here in Bethlehem. And this morning, like Ian said, I'm going to carry on with the series that you guys have been pursuing over the past few weeks. And my topic is a people of righteousness. We suffer well because we are righteous. So I've got the joy this morning of talking about suffering. <laughs> and, you know, I feel my task this morning is a difficult one. Because this passage that I've been asked to unpack is really about the persecution of the church, which I found very coincidental that you guys prayed about the persecuted church this morning. Ian told me that it had enough to do with my topic. So I believe God wants to say something to us this morning. And it's a difficult one because it's my assumption this morning that quite possibly many of us have never experienced suffering for righteousness sake. And what I mean by suffering is, I mean persecution for our faith in Jesus. I mean, but church history is full of stories of martyrs. People for their faith who were imprisoned and sentenced to death for what they believe in, in Jesus Christ. And it still happens today as we prayed about this morning. And I actually want to give you a report that was done in 2021 by the World Watch List, and it was posted by Open Doors, which is a foundation that supports and equips the persecuted church. And they gave us these figures from the 10 top countries where the church is being persecuted today. And they say, every day, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Every day... 12 churches or Christian buildings are attacked. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. And David Curry, who is the president and CEO of Open Doors here in the U.S., he says, you might think the list that I just read is all about oppression. He says, but this list is really about resilience and he goes on to say the numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean the church is dying that Christians are keeping quiet losing their faith and turning away from one another he stated but that's not what's happening instead in living color we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert did you know the church seeing the most growth in persecuted countries? That says something to the power of God in the face of evil. I mean, Jesus did say that he will build his church and not even the gates of hell will overcome it. And that's what we see in those countries. Not even the gates of hell are overcoming it. It's growing. So the question for us this morning, as the church in the West, is how resilient would we be in the face of persecution? I've been asking myself that all week preparing this message. Because being persecuted for our faith is something we don't really connect with in Britain or in America. 
I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. How many of us this morning drove to church today fearing that you might be imprisoned or put to death for turning in that parking lot? Probably any of us, right? Probably worrying about spilling your coffee, your late, what you're going to do after church. But look, if you become a Christian, or if you plant a church in North Korea or Afghanistan, you're doing that under no illusion that if you get caught, you're suffering. They understand that faith in Jesus could mean persecution and death. When they drive to church, bet you they've got a whole lot of other things on their mind and coffee and what we're going to do afterwards. And Grubby said something last week here. He said, you know, the church is no longer the good guy, which makes us the bad guy, and he's right. And in my spirit, I can't help but feel our ever-growing unpopularity in society may bring persecution to our doorsteps. And, and when I say that, I don't think we're going to be getting sentenced to death. I mean, they're not going to be, you know, building gallows in your town center for us. But I do think it will mean that we will be unju- our reputations will be unjustly tarnished. There may be financial laws. There may be prosecution. And we will be silenced from confessing what we believe. I mean, to some extent, you experience that at the pulpit today, because let's be honest, if you're a preacher, there's some things you won't say up here, not because they're insightful, but because you know that it might incite something in people who just don't find Christianity popular. And my hope is that the church will stand for righteousness' sake, but in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. There's a way to stand that's wrong. And there's a way to stand that is worthy of the gospel we claim to believe. Because you know what? There are some churches that are folded under the pressure. Right? Can we be honest about that? There are some churches that are folded under the, under the pressure. They renounce biblical doctrines that the church has held it for centuries as central. We even see some people under the pressure of popular culture renounce their faith. And deconstruct, which is a, has a negative connotation now, doesn't it? But have you ever heard that quote from Martin Luther King Jr. where he says, the true measure of a man is not how he behaves in moments of comfort and convenience, but how he stands at times of controversy and challenge. I just want to remix that just a bit for us this morning, right? The true faith of the church is not tested in times of comfort and convenience, but how we stand when the foundations of our beliefs are called controversial and offensive to modern culture. That's the true test. I believe... Yeah. The true faith of the church is not tested in times of comfort and convenience, but how we stand when the foundation of our beliefs are called controversial and offensive to modern culture. I'll slow down a bit for you. I do recognize my beauty and accent might be, you know, might be thinking I'm speaking at tongues at moments up here. You know, that's the greatest test of the church today. You know, how will we respond to suffering because we are not considered the good guys anymore in popular culture? Let's take a look at what the Bible says. What I'm going to do first is I'm going to read from 1 Peter 
chapter 1, verse 6, just verse 6, and then I'm going to go to verse chapter 3 to 17. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now let's go to chapter 3. Can we start from verse 8, guys? I'm going to go down to 17. I think it's important to go from verse 8 because Peter's building something here, right? So finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. This is, this is a calling thing, right? That you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Prayer implications as well, right? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who, makes, who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revel your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's God's word. So in the time this letter was sent out to the churches, the church was considered the bad guy. Any association with the name of Jesus did not make you popular with your neighbors. Like you would be eating Thanksgiving alone if we was back then. And this letter, this letter was possibly written on the Emperor Nero, who persecuted Christians by imprisonment, but his favorite way of punishing believers was to crucify them and burn them alive. Which, you know, he burned so much of them in that manner, it got the name of the Roman candle. So that's the context in which Peter is writing this letter. Look, being dedicated to one and only one God, choosing a new primary group of people to associate with, i.e. the church, and being committed to one another to live out the ethical values of God in community with fellow believers made you an outcast. See, these Christian communities resolutely set themselves against the immoral practices of Roman culture and religious beliefs. And as a result... In almost every region a community of believers existed, pressure was put on them to go back to normal Greco-Roman cultural practices. And this is what Peter's reminding them not to return to in chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, caressing, and detestable idolatry. This is the stuff that they were being forced and pressured to return back to. Saying, what are you guys doing? Worshiping one God? You don't want to take part in our our festivals and our other gods? They got persecuted for it. 
They got persecuted for wanting to be this one people in a community pursuing the ethics of God together. So they had to be prepared to suffer for righteousness sake. And 1 Peter might be the early book in the New Testament that is actually completely devoted to the issue of suffering. Because one of the first things Peter tells us is to prepare for the inevitable. And this is what I believe he's getting at in chapter 1, verse 6. When he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by many various trials. Now, I don't, if you look at this passage in different translations, it's kind of translated different. Some people say if you've had had or necessary, and it, the translators are trying to, bring, trying to translate the Greek word and get it across in English, which I don't think it really hits the mark, even in this translation, because they add that word, if. But the Greek word actually speaks more to necessity or inevitability, which completely changes that text. Where he's saying, like, greatly rejoice for the inevitability of suffering. Not if it's necessary. So Peter is not simply saying that suffering is possible, but that actually it's inevitable and it has value. The problem is nobody actually wants to suffer. And the modern Western person lives with an understanding, whether consciously or subconsciously, that if we just do everything right, if I get the right consultants, if I really have my act together, I could put together this designer lifestyle and avoid suffering. But let me tell you something. We could work as hard as we like, We could be as successful as we can be. We can go to the gym. We could drink apple cider vinegar and eat avocados until we become one. But you know what? It will not stop bereavement, physical illness, financial crisis, personal betrayals, and people attacking you for what you believe. Those things will happen to us, and they may cause pain in our lives. It's unavoidable. There's a well-known British surgeon called Dr. Paul Brand. And he spent half of his career practicing in India, and the other half of his career practicing between Britain and America. And this is what he says. He says, The British and American patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated. But they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. He goes on to say, in fact, I'd go so far as to say that for a lot of them, two-thirds of the pain they suffer is from the shock that they're actually suffering. (laughs) So he's saying like two-thirds of most of their pain doesn't come from the actual issue that's causing suffering. It's the fact that they're like, oh my gosh, how can I be suffering? I've been drinking apple cider vinegar. I've been running on the treadmill. I mean, why hasn't this avoided me? It's the shock, right? We're not prepared in the West for the inevitability of suffering. I have a guy that attends our Alpha group. I don't know if you guys know what Alpha is over here. Okay. And he's from Pakistan. 
And the issue of suffering came up, and everyone, you know, all of us, all of our Westerns, Westerners are talking about suffering. Oh my gosh, suffering, can't believe suffering. And he goes, I don't know why suffering's a big deal. It's just a part of life. And he said it so nonchalantly, because you know what, in Pakistan and in the East, it just is. They don't think suffering's this weird thing that's happening to them. They expect it. You know what, in some ways, First Peter is forcing us to think of the nature of the world. It's broken. It's forcing us to think of Jesus. He suffered because of that brokenness. He knew it was inevitable, so the joy set before him, he endured his suffering. I mean, Jesus even warns us about the inevitability of suffering, right? In John 15, verses 18 to 22, he says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We're not greater. Just saying like... You're not greater than me. So why would you think suffering would escape you? If they persecuted me, they would persecute you also. So following Jesus may lead us into the path of persecution and suffering. But how do we respond in the midst of it? And Peter gives us this rhetorical question when he says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, these questions are Peter's way of forcing us to reflect on what's being asked. We've got to look at that question. I mean, will people actually harm us for doing good? I mean, that's kind of complete contrary to what we think, right? We do good, we get good. I mean, the most logical answer to that question would be no. But you know what? Not everybody sees good the same way anymore. You know, even the perfect practice of virtue will not always prevent suffering. In fact, some people are so twisted, they will persecute you because your righteousness infuriates them. That's why Peter says, even if you might suffer because of righteousness sake. I mean, that might feel a little fatalistic, right? But believe me, there is no fatalism in First Peter. But instead, it's a realism that recognizes fallen human nature and the broken world that we live in. You know, in our present moment, I mean, majority of the people don't believe in God, let alone he's good. So they find Christian moral convictions and ethics as oppressive, offensive, and harmful. See, the goodness of God that we're called to reflect out of our lives is countercultural. Look, one commentator states this. He says, because the good is calculated in terms of the imitation of Christ and in reference to the holiness of God, those who are eagerly zealous for the good find themselves out of step with the conventions of wider society, failing to behave according to expected norms, they invite vilification 
and malice. The goodness of God that we're called to reflect out of our lives is no longer in line with conventional norms. So the very people that God has called us to be invites hostility. You know, nevertheless, Peter's encouragement is this. If your conscience is clear, this is important, your conscience has to be clear that we haven't invited this hostility out of our own sinful nature. And you know your actions have been good and you're being persecuted for it. He goes on to say the most craziest thing ever. He says, you are blessed. I mean, ultimately, Jesus is just, I mean, Peter is repeating the words of his teacher. This is Sermon on the Mount stuff, right? Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revel you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And look, those words from Jesus, are, are, it's a promise to us, right? That there's this great reward for us. But at the same time, he's pronouncing something. And what he's pronouncing is that blessing in the present. So there's, there's something we're waiting for, this great reward. But he's also pronouncing the very blessedness of Christ on our lives right now. And as Christians, that blessedness is that right now, as we live and breathe, we receive the benedictions of Christ over our lives. We receive all the benefits of Christ right now. But it still makes this language a bit strange, right? Do good, suffer, but I'm blessed. I mean, it doesn't really compute to the brain very well. But you've always got to remember this, Lord Jesus redefines the way things are in the world. He uses oxymoronic language that declares that those who suffer for righteousness, for the sake of righteousness, actually dwell in a state of blessedness. I mean, to us, we think suffering, we're like, what's going on? Something must be going wrong here. I, I'm, I don't feel blessed. But Jesus is turning that right upside on his head, right? And it comes as a shock to our ears because scriptures communicating in this statement a proverbial maxim. And proverbial maxims tend to appeal to a kind of enlightened common sense, right? It's the stuff everyone knows. And proverbial maxim, maxims draw their force from incontestable observations of the order of the universe, so it's like when we say this, what goes up must come down. Gravity, right? Or when we say actions speak louder than, than words. I mean, those are incontestable observations of the order of the universe. Gravity, up, down, right? But Peter's words and Jesus before him turned the observed world and conventional wisdom upside down. How can it be that those who do good suffer and who would confuse suffering with that state of blessedness? So when Peter tells us suffering for righteousness sake is a state of blessedness, it's a Christoverbial maxim. Don't worry if you've never heard that. I just made it up this morning. <laughs> 
It's a Christoverbial maxim declaring to us the incontestable observations of the kingdom of God. We are blessed when we suffer because we are people of hope. We rejoice because we are hopeful. We are people of holiness. We obey because we are holy. We are people of maturity. We mature because we are childlike. We are people of honor. We submit because we are honorable. We are people of righteousness. We suffer well because we are righteousness. These are incontestable observations of who we are as a people of the kingdom of God. The suffering or being persecuted for our faith, doesn't take away who we are. When we suffer, we don't lose ourselves in the midst of it. But what Peter's trying to say, you actually find yourselves probably more deeper than you would under any other circumstance. Look, that Greek word for blessed in the Greek is makairos which carries the meaning of, congratulations, you're in a good situation. <laughs> this guy's burning, the emperor at that time is burning people on a, on a cross, and Peter's saying, congratulations, you're in a good situation. I mean, that's literally what he's saying to them, right? A New Testament scholar, R.T. France, says the source of the disciples' celebration is the recognition that the good which is promised to them far outweighs the bad that they may experience now. Let me read, let me read that one again. The source of the disciples' celebration of the goodness in the midst of suffering is the recognition that the good which is promised to them far outweighs the bad that they may be experiencing now. How many of us connect, do you connect to that? What they're trying to say is they, they, they realize that what is common for them when Jesus returns, no matter how long that wait is, is far more important than the temporal suffering that they're going to experience right now. Man, that's the eternal perspective. And the good promise Jesus tells us is rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. You know what? That's that eschatological horizon that's always before the Christian life. No matter what's happening right now, whatever we're facing, how bad it is, Jesus is coming. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. There's a new body. There's a resurrection but there will be not a tear or suffering again. And these Christians understood that far better than we do. We're still worried about our now, but they knew, you know what, I'll go to that cross. Do to me what you will. For I know where I'm going is far better than anything I'm going to experience here. You know, and a matter of fact, right, you know, the whole of First Peter is characterized by an eschatological and even in an apocalyptic focus. And I would go as far as to say that it's not really possible to appreciate this letter without understanding that focus. And we can't dive into that, but I encourage you to look into it yourselves. Because look, Peter is preparing exiled Christians to face suffering by telling, telling them that, by telling them that because they are assured of this blessed future inheritance, there is nothing anyone can do to them. So in the final analysis, then they have nothing to fear on this earth. 
The only fear we should have is the fear of losing our inheritance, that great reward. And Peter told us in chapter 1 that that is secure in the rock of Christ. But fear is the greatest threat to being able to endure righteous suffering. Fear of losing your family, or friends, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a job, a career, your health, even your own life. You know, a people of righteousness need a fearless humility. And what I want to just get into here, this part real quickly is I want to talk about the fear of man. Because look, since God is for us and will bless us, there is no reason to fear man, nor be troubled by any difficult circumstance we may face during our life on this earth. And that's what verse 14 is getting at. But nonetheless, this is not just something we could just read and hear. Rather, this is a truth that we need to grab in our hearts. We need to sing it into our hearts. We need to pray it into our hearts. We need to memorize and meditate on it. We need our inner being awakened to this blessedness, to this reward that we have. It's not just something we just can intellectually ascend to and think that it'll carry us into the midst of suffering and keep us. It's not just something we know. It's something that we are. It's a state of being. It isn't just knowledge. You know, if God is for us, who could be against us? We love that verse, right? Man, it is more than a fridge magnet. Those words. It is, maybe, it, it's, it's not just a Christian saying. This is a truth that needs to be drilled into our hearts and it becomes a state of our being that if God is for us, who could be against us? And believing that truth in our inner being replaces fear with hope and boldness. And that hope and boldness comes from hearts that are full with Jesus. And that's what it means when Peter says, honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. Verse 15. Since our our actions flow from our hearts, We acknowledge his lordship and submit to him so that our actions, our entire lives are directed in a manner that pleases him. Honor honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. Look, the heart is the seat of volition and emotion for Peter. It's the core of the person. And Peter's call is for far more than intellectual commitment to the truth about Jesus, but for a deep commitment to him. Christ is to be sanctified as Lord in our lives. If Christ is the Holy One, then he must be the supreme authority ruling in our hearts. I mean, this is what the Lord's prayer is getting at when it starts, hallowed be thy name. To hallow the name means not only to have reverence and honor for God, but also to glorify him by obedience to his commands. By responding in a way, either by word or action, even through our suffering, that reveals that we have reverence and honor 
for God. That's kingdom of God stuff. Therefore, man becomes smaller and God becomes bigger. When man has more authority in our lives, it can only produce sinful nature. But when God has the overruling authority in our lives, then the imitation of Christ is manifested from our lives. And when I mean man, I'm not talking about you know, leaders and people in trouble. I'm not speak of man, I'm just talking about the world. The unregenerated man. <laughs> we are called to respond, even in the midst of suffering, with gentleness and respect, and given a reason for our hope. We are not to respond in arrogance, rage, or disrespect. You saw Jesus do none of that. Because what makes us different from the world if we respond like that? New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he comments on this passage. He says, you have to learn it because it will be all too easy to lapse into the way many people behave. Here is the irony. Christians are supposed to stand out as distinctive. But when we do and are mocked or criticized for it, we are tempted to mock and criticize right back. And then we are no longer distinctive because we are behaving just like everyone else. Another victory for the hostile world. When Christians give as good as they get, repaying slander with slander, they are colluding with the surrounding world. And just as surely as if they went along with immorality or financial corruption. Wow. The world is watching. What testimony are we giving them as the people of God, of Christ? We live in a broken world and we need the church to stand and be that kingdom light that we were called to be. It's only going to keep getting darker. And it's our responsibility as the church to keep getting brighter. Persecution is evil and we can't return evil for evil. The church is called to be righteous in the face of evil in order for the light of God to pierce the darkness and by the power of God, we overcome every principality and power. Can the worship team come up in both campuses, please? We're going to take this home. Now, Grubby said something else last week. He said, you know, and he said, why don't we always, you know, preach from the Catholic epistles? And he said, Pastor Rex said, the reason we hardly preach from the Catholic epistles is because we can't live up to it. Uh, you know, this is one of those passages that make that statement make sense, right? 
And yes, you know what? These are tall orders that we are called to live by as the people of God. No doubt. And I think Peter knew that as well. And then Peter wrote the first letter, sent that out. He got to his second letter. And then he got to a place where he said, man, this is, this is some tough stuff. So he opens his second letter in verse 3 and he says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him. We've already received it just by knowing Jesus. He has already given us by his divine power everything we need to live a godly life. For the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and accident. Let me say something, you know what? We don't feel like we can. That's the truth of it, right? You know, I used to think the most horrible thing I could face was one of my parents dying. And my father died three weeks before my wedding day. Got diagnosed with cancer five weeks before my wedding day. Two weeks, boom, gone. No longer with us. None of my family came to my... And you know... We never know how we're going to respond when those things happen, right? But by his divine power, he has given us everything we need to live a godly life. I was crushed. But I wasn't destroyed. I was able to celebrate with my family and my friends who attended him, my family back in Bermuda who watched him online. I was in pain. I didn't despair either. And, you know, I, want, I just want to preface it with this. That wasn't even just because of me. That was also because of the prayers of the church that were behind me. By his divine power, he has given us everything we need to live a godly life. You know, the grace of Christ in our lives makes it possible for us to accomplish what would be impossible otherwise for us to do without it. Let's stand. I just want you to just just take a moment with me. Let's close our eyes for a moment. I want us just to, let's bring the Holy Spirit into this space for a minute. And I want you to imagine with the Holy Spirit for a moment. Can you imagine how emboldened Christians would be if we would only believe what Peter was saying? That we are blessed. Can you imagine if we walked in the authority of our blessedness, the hope we can display to a watching world. Can you imagine what the light of the church can do to a world that is lost and broken only if we stand, only if we believe that we are the people that God has called us to be? Can you imagine that, NC4? Can you imagine that for your community? Can you imagine that for your country? I'm going to close with this quote. I'm going to pray. It's from Oswald Chambers. He says, No healthy Christian ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will. 
as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. It's God's will that we follow. And whatever that may bring, we know that we are in the safety of God's hands. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word. That it is true. It doesn't wrap us in cotton wool. It shows us what the world is. It shows us what we may face. But it also declares who we are in you. That when we are weak, we are strong. That no matter what we face on this earth, there is a great reward that nothing on this earth can take away from us. Oh Jesus, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, empower us to be a people of righteousness. A people who can face whatever the world wants to throw at us. And we will say, oh, this little light of mine, let it shine. May we shine of the goodness of God through wherever you may call us. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word JESUS to 610-816-6062.